guys, welcome to the new relaunch version of the Changeover Podcast. I'm Amy Federoff, and I'm here with Anusha Rosalingham. Hey, Anusha. Hey, Amy. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, I am back from uh, Prague in the Labor Cup, so I'm ready to talk about that. It's very exciting. And then we also have um, a reading series from Maria Sharapova's new book, so... Without further ado, I guess we can get started. Um, so, Anusha, tell us about your trip to the Labor Cup. Well, I mean, it was actually a pretty interesting trip. I, you know, when they announced it, I thought, well, I have to see this. I mean, when you get started, you know, I got these tickets at least six, eight months ago and had no idea what it was going to be. But I thought Prague, tennis, what's not to like? Um, it was a very, very well-run event, I have to say. Everything from dealing with the ticketing people to the way the event was organized was really well done. Um, they, obviously, a lot of money was thrown at this event. I actually met some videographers for um, British media um, while I was just hanging around the venue, and they said that they hadn't seen an event with that much money thrown at it really outside the slam. So they yeah, were very positive that on that. Way. Um, so for those who don't know, I believe that, so the Labor Cup is like a production of Federer's management, um, like Tony Godsick, and it's like Team 8, is that what it's it called? It is Team 8. And um, Tony Godsick is the CEO or chairman of, of, of Team 8, and also he's, that of the of the labor cup as well so this is definitely his his baby yeah it seemed like they definitely threw a ton of money at it and I feel like to some extent I think that was part of the key as to like what made it so good I think the players were like really excited about the conditions and everything that was happening around them so I feel like that definitely helped it did. I think what they, what it reminded me the most of, actually, and I've never been to these, is the ATP World Tour Finals. Um, you could see a little bit, and I haven't really watched much of the TV coverage, um, but you you could see, for example, in the backstage staging area, they had those dressing rooms with the players' faces plastered on them, and it looked very plush. Um, and it's in you know, a similar kind of feel because it's a limited field of players. They spent more on them. And, uh, and, yeah, even, and they also did the, um, the tuxedo like photo shoot beforehand. They did. And Burdish, of course, had, he clearly has the longest arms because he's always the one holding up the, the camera to do it, <laughs> to do the selfie. It's really funny. Um, either that or he's just a self appointed selfie guy on the ATP tour. I'm not sure. But, uh, and also even the colors, you know, the way I know the court. A lot of people said red is kind of chalky or not particularly uh, exciting on TV. But in person, I have to tell you, it was like being inside an Instagram filter. I mean, it was really, really striking. And it had that sort of, I don't know, if you could put a tennis court into a tuxedo, that's what it looked like. You know, the whole branding was very sort of, you know, this is an important event, which, you know, there's obviously going to be backlash from that because it, it had a certain importance or some might say self-importance to it. But at the same time, I think it, it, it gave the players maybe a feeling of, of gravitas about it that they might not have had, um, you know, had they gone with a less sort of starkly formal 
look. Um, but it really was very, very striking in person because that, that dark court and then the, the, uh, the uniforms were red and blue, the officials were in purple. So just visually, and I don't say that, you know, think about the number of times you've gone to a tennis match and said, oh, the visually it was really interesting. Not that much, um, but this was visually really interesting. Um, to look at and you saw people taking pictures just all over the place just because it was cool looking um yeah it definitely was I mean so much obviously went into like the production of this event and from a fan perspective I feel like it was really cool like you know I didn't watch the whole thing because I was just kind of at home doing you know regular stuff but um you know I think the social media was really great they posted like a bunch of clips and you know they were just very good about I feel like they staged a lot of you know things that they thought they really thought about their strategy for how they were going to make it fan friendly for people following at home so I thought that was really cool yeah what I especially liked actually were the two new camera angles that they they used they played them in the venue and I'm sure they used them for tv replays one was that overhead angle where you could see the player, especially in a point where there was a lot of movement, um, you could see the players running around, um, which I thought was very cool. And then the weird camera at the bottom of the middle of the net, which I don't know what they call it, the net cam or something, but I thought that was actually kind of neat because um, you get a sense of like players rushing the net, especially for the doubles. I thought that was very good. Yeah, that's um, really cool. I love that they actually did something new with tennis broadcasting right. because like, I mean, how many tennis matches have you seen, like, on TV that just, you know, it slams and every single tournament that are just filmed in the exact same way, like, year after year? Right. I mean, there's hardly any variety. And where there is change, sometimes it's not good change. And these were actually well-thought-out innovations, I thought. Um, and I liked the format, I have to say. I... At, I know there's been some talk that the, the first day matches were undervalued and how did those players feel, but they had to make sure that the third day was not, you know, a dead rubber. That even, you know, if you look at the first two days, I mean, there were eight matches played, right? Three singles and one doubles each day. And the only match that Team World won on, I think they won one match a day, right? The first so day doubles... For our listeners who don't know what Labor Cup is or may not have exactly understood it, so it's it's like a competition. It's similar to Ryder Cup format um, in golf where it's like Europe, Team Europe against Team World, and it was it was like six players per team. Is that right? It was five in an alternate, I think. Okay. Um, and so obviously we had... Fed and Rafa on one team, which was super exciting to see them play together. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess that I feel like the audience for golf and for tennis is so similar. Um, or, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap that I think, I think that format was very smart of them to use having people who were probably pretty familiar with the Ryder Cup. Um, you know, I think it was a good idea. Yeah. No, I, th I think it's a good idea. And it also speaks to just how dominant Europe is right now. I mean, you know, you could have, if you did it, I don't know, 15, 20, 15 years ago, it might have been team, 
America versus the world uh, versus the world, right? Yeah. Um, when you had like a Sampras Agassi type era, um, but I think this format works, and the way they divide the teams works, and then the way they scored the matches. Just to go over it, on day one they pay, played three singles matches and one doubles. Day two the same, and then day day three they they had the uh, the doubles to start and then again three singles matches and then there was a potential doubles tie break but what they did that was interesting and i think innovative is that on the day one matches were worth 1 point each so each match that team europe won they would get 1 point on day two the matches were worth 2 points each and on day three they were worth 3 points each meaning that even if say team europe had won all of the matches on days one and two, Team World could still win everything on day three and, and you know, be in the running or win the, the Labor Cup. So that means that, and what actually happened was is that Team Europe was very dominant in the first two days, but then Team World came within, you know, literally a point of tying it um, at the end, which, you know, you couldn't script a better ending, honestly, if you're, if you're teammate and, and the organizers of the event, because... You know, at the beginning, especially after day one, there was a certain sense of, oh, this is just going to be a route. But because of the way that they formatted the scoring, it, it, you know, it always had the potential to turn around and in fact very nearly did. Um, So I I thought that was um, very good. I actually saw a lot of people speculating that like that was staged and all this stuff, which was kind of funny. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea what went into the the whole like tournament. I suspect that it was not staged. You know, I, I doubt that anyone would bother with that. Um, no, but also I think that, um, that whole concept of sort of allowing a team to come back from being down a lot. I think there's something similar in world team tennis. Um, they have some sort of scoring, I believe where there's like higher stakes at the end. So a team, that's right. Down they have like the back. double something or, Something like that. I mean, no, literally no human being on this planet knows the actual rules for world team tennis. Um, That's just a a fact. So um, it's, it's highly complicated. You need a degree for that. I think. Yeah. We're not going to speculate on the exact details, but (laughs) I've actually been to world team tennis matches and they are very entertaining, but it, it does, it, it requires a bit of an education, and, you know, even though I've been, I have to say, I, I kind of need to be re-educated every time I've, I've watched one, um, just because it's it's so different than than what we're used to seeing. Um, I think the thing and, that drives me crazy about it, though, is, especially, is that um, the ones that I've been to, they actually were playing music between the points. They do, I mean... You know, and that's probably a good contrast, say, with Labor Cup is that, I mean, Labor Cup, they were definitely playing music. It wasn't, you know, it's funny. For a tournament that Federer has his sort of weight behind, it's very different than, you know, his platonic ideal at Wimbledon. I mean, it's it's very slick. It's There's advertising all over the place. You know, when somebody hits an ace in the venue, there's like a Mercedes ad for whatever vehicle sponsors aces. and um, And there's music playing and... Um, so it, it took that sort of thread of being fan friendly, um, which I appreciated, but it also still retained enough traditional tennis structure to not feel like you're watching sort of 
something through the looking glass, which, you know, as much as I appreciate World Team Tennis's place in the tennis landscape, um, it's hard for it to really, I think, get a foothold today because it's just, I think it's a little too different. Um, whereas Labor Cup, I thought, was, was smart in capitalizing on the parts that work really well. And, you know, they did take some other innovations that I thought made sense, like having the third set match tie break. I mean, it helped to move the event along. You know, because frankly, being there in person, I mean, you're watching, say you get the event starts at one, like you're watching eight, nine hours of tennis and they kept those matches going. Um, even with, you know, two tie break sets and a match tie break, it's a long day of watching tennis. You could even see the players, which was interesting. I felt like they, you know, maybe got a little feeling of what it must be like to te be tennis media because they were exhausted after day one, just sitting there and watching the matches, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I thought that it was smart to keep it going. And they were, the fact that the match tiebreak is already used in doubles, you know, a lot of your more hardcore tennis fans would have already seen it because it, it shows up in, in doubles and mixed in the slams anyway. Um, yeah, I think it was a successful experiment. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of people who are very resistant to change with Davis cup format and with, um, you know, the, the men's side, the best of five um, thing at slams. But I mean, I think I think this is a good example of the fact that there can still be incredibly good dramatic tennis in some other different formats um, other than like exactly whatever is whatever we've done in the past. It doesn't really change like the stakes. It doesn't make it less dramatic necessarily. No, it doesn't. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I think one thing that there's some things that they did well by design and there are some things that came together for them that maybe, you know, they set the stage for but could not have predicted. Like we, we all kind of expected the Fidal romance to, to, to blossom in Prague and in fact it did. But I think, you know, the real, the the player that really made it all tick for me was Nick Kyrgios. I mean, the fact that he brought so much heart to this. Um, and he was, to me, he seemed like the linchpin around which Team World really coalesced. You know, they really, he was so into it. And and also with him, you, you knew that he had a chance to beat any of those guys on Team Europe. So I'm sure it gave his, his teammates a lot of confidence to have him. But... You know, some people felt like, and I sometimes thought McEnroe himself might have felt like some of the team world, you know, sort of viral reactions were too much. But I thought it spoke to just having a bunch of young guys who were really into it and really, um, you know, wanting to show that. Um, so I thought they actually, as much as Team Europe and all the, you know, the Fidal bromance stuff is getting a lot of play, I actually thought Team World is actually what made the event what it was because if they'd come into it defeatist or, you know, really clowning around or not playing well, um, it wouldn't have meant anything. But the fact that they came into it, played really hard and got really close and really cared, I think really gave it, you know, the, it really gave the, the event, the, the balance that it needed because otherwise it really would have been closer to a hit and giggle, you know? And, yeah. uh, and it, it, I think it gave us a new perspective. I mean, as much as, you know, as much as I'll complain about John McEnroe, I thought he was a perfect 
choice for those guys because, you know, he has the volatility. He was willing to fire them up. Um, and I thought Borg was a good choice for Team Europe because they really didn't need much of a coach. And, I mean, he seems like a very nice man, and he looked really good. But, you know, I don't know if he even spoke during some of those matches. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell. Yeah, I, I think he did. I Like, I was watching a little bit of a replay today of one of the Fed matches, and um, there was a little bit of coaching, but it was kind of, it was just funny to listen to because it was almost, like, perfunctory. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I feel like I should be coaching now. You know, I'm going to say, like, oh, yeah, you did the right thing in that game right there. Like, keep that up. <laughs> <laughs> like you're really good fed keep that up <laughs> um, yeah i mean it, it you know to to borg's defense he had a much more seasoned team and you know even the young guys on his team like a, a zverev zverev didn't really need much coaching he played quite well um and you know team maybe but he only you know so, but, you know, Fed Rafa, I mean, what's he going to say? I mean, Rafa, I think, you know, he, he was going to exercise his own demons. It's kind of funny, though, because given how much, like, on-court coaching, at least earlier in Rafa's career, had been something that was talked about, I don't know that when he actually had the opportunity to have, like, someone talk to him, um, whether Borg was necessarily <laughs> there, the guy he, you know, needed. And, you know, when he was in the throes of it with Isner, I don't think any of the guys even knew what to say, so. Oh, man. Um, so what was your, let's maybe go through some of the, what we liked and what we didn't like about the event. Um, what was your highlight? I would say that last match, that Fed Curios match is one. And also, weirdly enough, day one, I know that the matches. I mean, most of the matches went to tiebreak, but it was just really exciting to see this event kind of develop right in front of you. Because, you know, the first match starts and you're like, oh, I don't know what this is going to be. And by the time you're halfway through the match, you're like, wow, these guys are really fighting. And, you know, seeing the young guys, especially um, Tiafo and Shapovalov, I thought they were really, even though they lost, they were incredibly good. Um and they were really fun to watch. Um, so I guess those would be my main highlights. You know, I the Fedal bromance, it it was great in person. It was even better on social media, I have to say. Because just, I mean, those pictures, I don't know what is in the air between them. But the way they interact with each other is highly entertaining. And, uh, and I enjoy it. So. I mean, I'm sorry, but they're just like true love. They, They're true love. They love each other. It's like the greatest bromance of all time. I know. I mean, it's written by Nicholas Sparks, that bromance. I mean, <laughs> you know, the video with them set to, like, my heart will go on, it felt appropriate. It didn't even feel like a joke to me. Yeah, and of course they've had that dynamic over the years. We sort of have had, you know, there are a few photos here and there. There's, like, some moments. There's, like, the infamous confetti um like them picking <laughs> confetti out of each other's hair and like in 2009, <laughs> which is like amazing, but it's amazing. You know, it's, it, it sort of gave us like, you know, all those people who are out there writing Fidel fan fiction of which there are many, I discovered one day. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of Fidel fan fiction out there. Um, I mean, fantastic. 
basically they just made Fidel fan fiction like they did. pointless. I mean, they just played it out in real life. So I mean that doubles match. I will say, you know, I didn't. I know they sold. I think they sold a lot of tickets just telling people they were going to play doubles together because that was a big part of their initial promotion even before tickets went on sale. And at first I'm like, oh, that's kind of gimmicky, you know, but I'm still going to go. But when they walked out on the court together and they played that match, and it was kind of a goofy match in some ways, um, it was like you really felt like, wow, I'm really seeing something. I don't know what it, it, it is, really but special it is something. It did. To have them on the court together. Like it was just... I mean, it's sort of, it was extremely exciting. It was like a cool thing that we've never yeah. seen before. I mean, it's just, I mean, props to the event for for putting it all together. Yeah, and it was, you know, so that's, I think, you know, so those are, I think, the things I liked. I mean, definitely the the heart of Team World, um, you know, and including McEnroe, you know, in that, in that grouping, I think it's the other thing. Um, you know, I would have been really happy. I mean, it would have been kind of weird for Federer and Nadal to have headlined this event and then to lose to a bunch of upstarts. But, you know, I would have been happy with either team winning. And if Team World had, I think, you know, it would have been such... Those guys would have been so happy. Um, so, I, you know, I appreciate that. But, um, yeah, you know... Now, for what we didn't like, you know, I'm... Oh, I have, total... I have one more that I have to bring up for the pros. So, yeah. before we move on to the the things that they need to, to fix for next time. So, in the... I guess it was the... Was it the... No, it was after, like, they clinched the, the Labor Cup. Um, so, Rafa, like, ran and jumped into Fetter's arms. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> and Let's yeah. just enjoy that for a moment. <laughs> Which is just incredible in a lot of ways. So great. But my favorite part of it was, um, like, you know, there were a lot of fans tweeting about, oh my god, like, Rafa is going to injure Fetter's back. And my Including favorite, Chris Everett, by the way. Well, actually, that's worried. what I was going to say. And Chrissy was just the best. That was my favorite <laughs> moment, was like, you know, everyone was like, oh, my God, Fed's back is going to be injured. And then, sure enough, there comes Chrissy's tweet about <laughs> Federer's back. She just always needs to be on top of all these things. She's, she's worried like, about him. She is a she's a pure fangirl. So she is. That was, like, one of my highlights. I just, it I is, love her. I, like, I love her, her too. Basically. She's, she's so brittle and kind of perfect. I mean, just as an aside... Like, I don't know what's happened. Maybe it's just me recognizing more of her personality or maybe her letting more of it out. I don't know what it is, but there's something like that the champ, I like when she tells us what champions do because she's speaking as a champion, which she does. And it's, it's, it's sort of a verbal tick, but it's also um, very much how she approaches things, which I think is really interesting. And like, you know, just the, the way that she's competitive even now. Like when she talks to Pam Shriver, I mean, there's just, but the way she loves Fed is so pure that, you know, maybe only Rafa can really match it. Let's be honest. Well, I don't know if um, this has been kept up recently, but there used to be a hashtag on Twitter 
that was like shit Chrissy says and it was just like random stuff that she would say in her commentary and it was it was a really enjoyable hashtag so, <laughs> um if you are looking for some good reading should definitely check out that hashtag um but no she's she's a wonderful mix of like sort of amazingly clueless but also really funny like just makes ridiculous comments all the time so yeah um it's- anyway not to get off on too much of a tangent about Chrissy although she's like our our favorite. Um, I know. We'll have to s- devote an ex- some time to Chrissy later in another podcast. Absolutely. So I guess let's move on to what we did not like. You know, I mean, I am like a total labor cup Kool-Aid drinker. I'm drinking Kool-Aid out of the labor cup. So I honestly, maybe it's because I was there and, you know, the, the haze of, of just being immersed in it for, for all that time. But I really can't say there's anything I actively didn't like, you know, I, yeah, I can't. Yeah. I don't think there was much to dislike. I, so one thing that sort of annoys me because I'm like one of those people is, um, there was sort of all of this debate over whether it was an exhibition or not. And it's like, Yes, it was absolutely an exhibition. It was not a match that, you know, it was not an event that counted towards, like... It's not a sanctioned event. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, I mean, literally, just by definition, it's an exhibition event. But, you know, of course, like, the people involved want it to be considered something bigger. So, I, you know, I think all the players made a, a very big point to say in the press like this is not an exhibition of course because they wanted people to take it seriously and that's fine but I feel like you know I think a lot of people sort of drank the Kool-Aid on it and I sort of was like laughing at like John Isner got in a a little confrontation on Twitter about you know someone called it an exhibition and he was like exhibition you thought those last three days were an exhibition (laughs) an incredible event was born this past weekend that's my john isner voice (laughs) um and it's like okay but it i mean you can have an incredible exhibition i know it's hard to believe but i don't think the fact that it was an incredible event proves that it's not an exhibition right i mean i think you know I think it was more than a typical exhibition, if, if, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's hard because, you know, most other events that we take seriously, like the tennis calendar, were not born, like, last week, you know? And so they're taken seriously because they've always been taken seriously, or they've been taken seriously for a long time. Um, and so this is, like, it's born, and it's like, no, I'm serious right away. And so they're in a weird position because they want it to be taken seriously right away, but most things in tennis that are taken seriously need to have been around at least a little while. Um, so yeah. I understand that they're trying to sort of put the spin on it, that it's not an exhibition. But, you know, by definition, because it's not a sanctioned event, it is literally an exhibition. But that yeah. doesn't mean that it wasn't, you know, genuinely contested and that, you know, now, I mean, you've got Tennis Australia and the USTA signing on to it, so... I think it's a matter of time given how successful it was and you know, the, the buy-in of, of like a lot of, you know, you've got not only tennis Australia and the USTA, but it's connected with Rod Laver, which, 
you know, if there is somebody who's unassailable in tennis, it's him. And then you've got, you know, the 70s generation with Borg and McEnroe in. I mean, Mac, those were really artful choices by by the, the creators of this because they've got buy-in from, like, major stakeholders in tennis, you know. Not the ITF, but a lot of everybody else. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I thought the um, my favorite take on the exhibition or not debate was um, Andrew Eccles, our, our changeover pal, um, said on Twitter, quote, I wonder how much it costs to have not an exhibition engraved prominently on the side of the actual labor cub. <laughs> I think was a very, um, it's, it's a perfect sort of summary of that debate. But um, the other aspect of labor cub, I think that will be interesting to watch is, I mean, like any other ATP thing nowadays, it feels like it's, it just leans so heavily on Fed and Rafa. And, you know, you sort of wonder, I, I mean, obviously there were incredible storylines going on with other players, but I mean, if you take Fed and Rafa out of this event entirely, which, you know, a couple of years down the road, like theoretically these guys are going to retire. Um, and, that says he's going to coach, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess that they could just stay around forever in some form. Um, I saw someone suggesting that they um, they play into their well into their 40s as double specialists together, um, <laughs> which would be a lot of fun. But I, it would know, be I, a lot of fun. I don't think that's probably going to happen. But, um, you know, I, I do think that the ATP has quite a reckoning coming Um I think they're they just really are going to have to they're going to take a blow when these guys are out of the game and you know I think there are obviously some people who are stepping up and becoming stars on their own um but I you know I th I don't think that you can make a superstar like Fed and Nadal overnight and there is definitely going to be a void when they're gone and that's definitely going to affect events like the Labor Cup that are so star driven Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And, you know, it'll be incumbent upon them to try and, you know, find the new stars and develop them. I mean, both the ATP and also Labor Cup. And that's where I think they did well with Team World. But you're right. Without Fed and Rafa, this event, number one, is far less lopsided on paper. And number two, it's just people buying tickets and TV and everybody signing up at the get-go, even, you know, getting Borg and McEnroe to sign up at the get-go. I think without Federer, and Laver, for that matter, himself. Without Federer and, you know, obviously Nadal, um, I don't think that happens. And so it'll be interesting to see how they, like everybody else in the ATP, manages um, in the post-Fedal era, whenever it may come. What also I think will interest me going forward is, you know, a couple things. One is, do Novak and Andy participate? This was a really fun event. It got a lot of good media coverage and... You know, it seems like a feel-good time. And maybe, you know, I, I kind of joke that Federer is going to be playing a lot of exhibitions in Scotland or wherever else Andy wants him to play to, to make this happen. But, you know, I think that some of it, some of this was driven by the fact that Fed and Rafa have a good personal relationship. And I'm sure Rafa got paid gobs of money to show up. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really want to see Fed and Djokovic play doubles together. I feel like oh that would God. be... 
legendary because the two fan bases just hate each other so much. It's yeah, it's so epic. Like it would the the internet would erupt in like <laughs> I don't know if we could handle it to be honest. It would be too much, I think. You know, it would be the, I don't know what the opposite of, of that Titanic theme is, but I think Fed and Novak would actually probably get along fine. But uh, I, I don't think they're best friends. Like, there are no videos of them giggling together or anything. Oh, yeah. But you I'm, can tell they, I mean, they don't like each other, which is fine. I mean, you don't have to yeah. like everyone in this world. No. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think they like each other, but I think they would be able to conduct themselves on a doubles court fine. Yeah. Um, and, and better than their fans conduct each other. Oh, like, yeah. Absolutely. Conduct themselves far. among each other. So. Um, yeah. So we're sort of in the tennis season, in the, um, the non-exhibition stuff that's happening right now. We're just sort of coming off the U.S. Open, in which Sloane Stevens um, made me look like a fool for ever doubting her. Um, You're not alone, Amy. You're not alone. So I was looking back on some of the really obnoxious things that I said about Sloane Stevens over the past few years. I was sort of like a hater, for lack of a better word. Um, That's what she would call you, to be fair. Yeah. Um, And I sort of, I look at her very differently than I used to. I guess I used to just think she was, I didn't really think that she was going to put it all together, I suppose. But I'm glad that she proved me wrong. I think she's actually hilarious now that I, I look back on some of the things that she did. Like, you know, there was the interview where she talked about, like, she had, there was this profile that it was in like one of the, um, it was in like Vogue or something like that. I can't remember exactly where it was, um, or Marie Claire or something like that. And the reporter like followed her around and she just shared like all these really embarrassing things. Um, yes. Wasn't she in the car with Jack Sock or something? Yeah. Or- so the, the highlight of that article was, her in the car with Jack Sock, like talking about getting a Nuva ring. Um, yes. Contraception. <laughs> like, like, I guess telling Jack that she had gotten it or I don't know, like in front of the reporter. And <laughs> oh my gosh, I remember reading that and just being like, oh my God, this is just so cringeworthy. But I mean, looking back, it's like, that's hilarious. And she kind of rules. <laughs> so <laughs> I, yeah. I'm I'm Team Sloan all the way right now. For our final segment, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Maria Sharapova's book, Unstoppable, My Life So Far. Um, That's a very Maria title already. I already feel good about it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing. I, I got this book for my, uh, well, I got it in the mail the other day, and um, I did not read the whole thing yet, but I... I sort of, I read sort of the last half of the book because um, the first half of the book is kind of her, her early years and, you know, the less interesting stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The less juicy part. I mean, really, like, when I bought, when I got this book, I'm like, okay, let's show me the Dimitrov stuff, Um, you know. Okay, that's what I wanted to know about, too. Yeah, Um, like, show me the stuff about Serena. So, so I really appreciated, um... 
sort of halfway through this book, she shares that um, she had a childhood crush on Philip Petchner. Um, and so this she was the best thing that's ever happened to Philip Petchner, by the way. Yeah, totally. I mean, so she shares this story about how she was playing in um, the final of the Junior Australian Open, and she played Barbara Streetsova in the final, lost to Barbara Streetsova, and was really jealous because she was dating um, Philip Petchner. Um, so that was, that was an entertaining tidbit. So here's an excerpt. Um, this is Maria... The first time that she like sees Serena, <laughs> so she's at the she's at the um, Wimbledon ball because I guess she she won the junior title and Serena also was the winner. Um, so Serena's like at the Wimbledon ball as the um, the winner of the tournament. Um, so this is Maria. There is one thing I do remember though. Everyone came into the big room together, everyone except the men's and women's singles champions, who made their appearance only after all the others had been seated. They came in one at a time, each making a grand entrance through the huge, ornate doors, and between the tables as those in the room gasped, then cheered. I was at the junior's table, which was like the kid's table at a wedding. We were right up, set up right beside the entrance. Just as I started to relax, I heard the clapping, that thunderous applause. Serena Williams had won the championship that year. She did it by beating her sister Venus in the final. She already started to separate herself from all the other players and had begun that crazy run of dominance. She squeezed every bit of glory out of her grand entrance, head held high, shoulders back, beaming. Cheers and cheers and cheers. People started getting to their feet. It was a standing ovation. The girl next to me, whoever that was, I can't remember, banged me on the shoulder and said, Get up, get up! It's Serena Williams! <laughs> I wanted to get up, but my body just would not let me. It was as if I were stuck in that chair, staring at Serena through the crowd of people with a single thought in my head. I am going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a window, right? I mean, that is very, very Maria. It really is. I think this book, um, it's, it's sort of very interesting because it's, it's definitely surprisingly candid. I wouldn't have expected her to sort of own up to some of the stuff about Serena, you know, just basically treating Serena like she's, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, you can just tell how much in awe Maria is of Serena or, you know, intimidated by her and intimidated by her presence and stuff. Right. I mean, there was a lot of the, you know, the physical descriptions. Serena got a lot of play in the media, you know, the, the whole muscular thing. Yeah. Uh, for, for those who don't know what we're talking about there, um, there was a description and I have that flagged as well. Um, there was a description that Maria did of Serena later on in the book. And she said, um, First of all, her physical presence is much stronger and bigger than you realize watching TV. She has thick arms and thick legs and is so intimidating and strong. And tall. Really tall. I looked across the net and no way to get around it. She was just there. Um, so, I mean, is she a taller, first of all? Yeah, she's like I mean, a lot taller. Like that's, yeah. 
That's the weird thing. I guess Maria's like 6'2", and Serena's what, like 5'8"? Oh, I think Serena's like 5'10", I think. I mean, yeah, this is a knowable thing, and in fact, I'll look it up while we're talking, but, uh, um... But she's definitely, but Maria's definitely taller. She's 5'9". So... Okay. I mean, Serena is, like, average height. <laughs> like, she's not... For a tennis player, absolutely. For, yeah, not for a, a tennis player. Most of the big, you know, most of the sort of rising star players, like Garbina or Pliskova or... Yeah, they're like or giants. Petra. I mean, they're, they're Maria-sized. They're Maria-sized. I mean, Serena's a little bit of a throwback. Yeah, um, so that's kind of... I mean, I think it. I think that's a, a bad way of describing Serena, and I think it's a it's a way that can very easily be interpreted to, to be sort of racist, um, because you know you you see oftentimes um, black athletes being characterized as like, you know, strong, muscular, like, I you know they sort of it's, people, it's people lazy. Play I thought it's lazy description, description and. and um, you know, this whole book on some level has to be, it partially, it feels like it's Maria, you know, expressing herself and telling her story, but it was also written, although I'd heard it been shopped around before her suspension, um, you know, it was certainly released and all, um, you know, or at least put together and everything during the susp- suspension and released soon thereafter, so... You know, this is a time where she's certainly very concerned about her image and how she's being portrayed. And so I'm just surprised that nobody in her vast camp of people, especially after missing the Meldonium thing, flagged this and said, you know what, this is probably not the best way to describe Serena. I mean, we understand you feel that way, but there are other words we can use. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just such a, a lazy thing. I think we often see people making these comments about Serena that she, like, that she hits hard and it's like Maria hits the ball a lot harder than Serena probably. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, Serena's game is just by and large, much more intelligent, I would say. Um, and her movement is so much better. And honestly, yeah, in tennis, exactly. like you can be the hardest ball striker in the game, ask Madison keys. And, you know, if you don't have the movement, if you don't have the strategy or if you don't have the, the mental toughness, you're not going to get anywhere. So, yeah, I just felt it was lazy and unfortunate, and you know, but unfortunately for Maria, it's gotten um, you know a lot of coverage, and obviously not favorable. And for somebody who really could use some favorable coverage, I thought that was a little unfortunate for her. Yeah, and you know, it's sort of it's sort of heartbreaking to see Serena just sort of stereotyped like that. Um, you know, this this late in her career with so many accomplishments and. You know, I feel like we've been through this discussion before many, many times with her. Um, I mean, it just, it's just, like you say, it's its sort of lazy on Maria and her, her team's part to put something like that in the book. But I, I think it's also, um, it's certainly a sign that people are really sort of clueless when it comes to, um, like, less blatant racist stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, it's like I I just wonder why why that did not stand out to anyone, but you know, I think that it's it's like coded racism, so um it's it's unfortunate to see. So what else did you like in the book? Anyway, yeah, moving on from that kind of 
depressing conversation. So we get to the, the really good part. And it's um, the part where Maria, like, hooks up with Grigor Dimitrov. Um, oh, is, I, I really want to know about this. It's very good. Okay, so this is... Um, this is as Maria and Grigor were um, sort of getting to know each other, and Maria starts taking an interest in him. So um, this is Maria on Grigor. Something about Grigor's tour schedule confused me. He was getting to Paris too early for an indoor tournament in Paris. It didn't make sense to me. Why would he be playing before the main draw began? I quickly opened a much dreaded application I have on my phone called Live Scores, which has live scoreboards from every tennis tournament being played around the world, including all the tournament draws. I spent way too much time on NBA.com during my three years with Sasha searching for minutes played point percentages. I wasn't ready for another round of that, not so soon. And yet here I was again. I checked the main draw. Grigor's name wasn't there. I moved on to the qualifying draw. There he was, ranked 60th in the world. Next thing I knew, I was peeking at the live scores of qualifying matches. It was all long distance until one night he arrived at my doorstep with red roses and a giant teddy bear. That's so Grigor. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, it's just, it's like if you, um, if you were instructed to put together like, an exact parody of what you think happened between like Maria Sharapova and Grigor Dimitrov, it would be exactly that. It would be like sappy Grigor and like Maria just getting really pressed about how low he was ranked. I know. I mean, it's hard. She's like, God, he's qualifying. God, it's so hard. I don't know. Until honestly, until the suspension, I mean, I'm sure she actually maybe played qualifying, you know, way back in the day, but I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if you got a lot of wild cards anyway, you know? So it's yeah. like, no, it's, it's hilarious. And so, okay. So she goes on like that for a little while and she, she is very, um, she writes about Grigor very affectionately. You know, she talks about just all the, the wonderful things about him. She calls him inspiring and beautiful and all this stuff. <laughs> um, so, and then she gets to this point, which is sort of her wrapping up of the, the relationship. Um, and it's sort of beautifully melancholy. So here's, here's Maria on the end of their relationship. Grigor recently told me, we were talking on the phone after he'd reached the semifinals of the Australian Open, that one of the worst things in life is when you have the right thing at the wrong time. It made me think of an evening we spent before the 2015 Wimbledon tournament. He had reached the semifinals the previous year by beating Andy Murray. He lost to Novak Djokovic in four sets in that round. He pulled out a book that Wimbledon puts together of previous championships. I believe this this is an editorial note, but I believe that's the book that Neil Harmon um, lost his job for plagiarizing. Yes. In fact, that's probably a plagiarized volume, although that might exactly. have happened earlier. Um, so just going to insert that little um, tidbit for you. Um, so he pulled out a book that Wimbledon puts together. Um, he quietly flipped through the pages of the book until he found a picture of me in his box watching his match. He looked at me, sad. I thought I saw tears in his eyes. Did you see this? This means everything to me. Seeing you in my box next to my mother. 
It was then, at that moment, that the emotional pull I had been fighting came to an end. I knew, and so did he, that I couldn't be that person at this time in my life. I was supposed to be focused, getting prepared for my own matches, my own triumphs and defeats on this largest stage of my career. I had been watching his match that day only because I had lost early at those championships, so his good memory was my bad memory. What meant everything to him happened only because I had lost. Like he said, you can have the right thing, but it might come at the wrong time. So so that's the the Grigor Maria relationship and it, it is sort of it's sort of sweet. It's it's bittersweet. It is. You know, I I was always it was interesting. I, I found it a very intriguing chapter for her. I mean, for him it felt like you know I think with him he's what you see is what you get. He seems like a very affable, sweet guy. Um super emo. Very Pardon? emo. Yeah. Like he's super and emotional. Like he's his Instagram. If you haven't seen it, is it's fantastic. It's incredible. Like my favorite one is um, him, like posed in front of the fireplace. You know the yeah. one. Um, we'll, 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 do we'll put it. up it's a so link good. to that in in our um, show description for anyone who wants to see that. One of my favorite parts of Maria's book was um, she. So she was describing. Um, she was waiting for one of her matches at Wimbledon to begin, and I believe this was at the, the 2004 Wimbledon. Um, and she talked about, um, like, waiting for a men's match to finish, and it was just so perfect, Maria, like, throwing shade on the men. So I'll, I'll read that part. Um, so she says, I settled in for a long delay. I wasn't scheduled to play till after the men's match, and there was no telling how long that would go. Since they play three out of five, you know you're in for a long wait. And of course these guys went into a fifth set, which everyone knew they would, because neither one of them had any consistency. Why even bother playing the first when you know you're going into a fifth? (laughs) (laughs) She should be the advocate for best of three. She's obviously got a point. Yeah, I was reading that, and I was like, yeah, Ben, like, I've got to tell Ben Rothenberg about, he's, because uh, he's, he's the, the best of three champion, but, um, absolutely. no, I thought that was very entertaining, that she was complaining about that none of them had consistency. <laughs> I don't know who she was referring to, because she doesn't name, I, w- I would have to look at, like, the schedule from that day at Wimbledon, but I'm sure it wouldn't be that hard to find out, um. But that was pretty good. And then the the final tidbit that I enjoyed in this book was, um, so she was talking about playing Irani in the the French Open final. And she wrote, I played Sarah Irani in the final. If you're playing Irani in a Grand Slam final, you could say it's a good draw, especially when you see her eating a Mars chocolate bar an hour before the match. Oh, no. <laughs> And of course, my first thought was like, well, at least she wasn't eating her pasta. Um, yeah, that's right. I know. <laughs> Man, how that turned out. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. I I thought that was funny. There, there's just a lot of um, little Maria personality in there, like that kind of throwing shade on, on random people. Like, I mean, there's some really funny things in there, like um, she'll she'll talk about players and she'll be like, Kleisters was a Belgian player that I really liked. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> that's one way of putting it. I mean, it, it, it sounds, sounds like it's hard, hard for her to sort of drag out compliments about her her competition, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why Gregor sort of sticks out, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Like, um, I think out of all the people that she talks about here, I think she definitely, she writes about Dimitrov in the most, like, glowing way, whereas... Like you say, when she's talking about her colleagues, other than Serena, who she does, you know, for all the the controversy that arose from Maria's physical description of Serena, there's also a lot of her talking about how incredible Serena is. Um, so it's really interesting to me that she's done the book. Like I said, at least the idea for it apparently had been kind of shopped around before the suspension. I think the suspension, weirdly enough, gave her sort of that you know, the dramatic twist, if you will, because otherwise, you know, I had a tough um, start and then I became famous and very successful. You know, there's no third act, right? And the yeah. suspension, weirdly enough, gave the book, like, the the plot line that it needed. Oh, yeah, um, it totally did. So you can kind of tell that, um, that that was the case because, like, she opens with a little bit about finding out that she was being suspended and you know it's sort of like the prologue and then she goes into like her whole career and then at the end she goes back to the suspension again she does walk through in pretty good detail about like her press conference and the um the appeals process and everything so I mean it's definitely interesting I didn't I didn't get to like read it in great detail and I'm gonna go back and read a lot more of it but um you know, I just wanted to pull out all the juicy parts. I think there were some sort of surprisingly candid moments. Um, one thing that I'd never really given much thought to, but um, seems to come back as a theme in her book a lot of times, is just kind of how young she was when her career started. And she actually talks a lot about how, like, creepy men were with her when she was, like, 16 and 17. And... You know, I I thought that was interesting. She um she went back and look like she prints some excerpts from her like her journal or her diary, um talking about getting all this really unwanted attention from older men. And I mean, it's kind of disturbing to imagine what kind of attention she was probably getting. <laughs> I know I can only imagine because just the things that were written about her in fairly mainstream media, or at least in the British tabloids, which I know is you know. But it has its own issues, but it's pretty shocking. So I can only imagine to be that 16 or 17-year-old and get that attention must have been, you know, kind of unimaginable. And, you know, it probably started much younger, frankly, because, you know, she was already a known quantity, you know, a couple of years before. Yeah, she was, she spent all of her time as she was growing up on the tennis court. I mean, I mean, not that any, like... 16 or 15 year old should have to deal with stuff like that but I mean it was probably even more shocking just not having necessarily experienced that I think what's interesting now is it gives you a little bit more of a context and some of the things that have happened in the past like you know that that press conference where she went after Serena after the alleged comments about Grigor and you can kind of see like that was to me it was so out of character for Maria to to go there and and to invite controversy, you know, and it was 2013 Wimbledon, right? 
sort of the, the kickoff of the weirdest Wimbledon ever. And now you can kind of see she was like a young person in a relationship with a guy she really liked. And, you know, she just like was she was just went for it. And, yeah. you know, for somebody who's so measured, like it gives the book gives you this context of like, even if she wouldn't herself tell you about it, I think gives you insight into to you know what was in her mind at the time and so that about does it for our first episode of the revamped changeover podcast um again i'm amy federoff and i'm here with anusha Rasalingam, and you can find mostly anusha's <laughs> writing at um changeovertennis.com i'm terrible about writing lately so you're probably not going to find anything from me um but we're also on twitter um I'm at Amy Federolf, F-E-T-H-E-R-O-L-F, and Anusha is, um, you're Anusha Says, right? Um, right, Anusha S-E-Z. So um, tweet at us, um, you know, be kind to us, because this is our first go back at a, at a podcast, um, and hopefully we will be back with you soon. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.